Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Uh, we are, I believe, finally out of bridegrooms of blood. We essentially finished the um, the scene with um, Tzipora and Moshe and a circumcision uh, and the um, the different way of understanding Chatan Damim Atali and then Chatan Damim Lamulot. I don't remember if we finished the last Rashi on that. I know we were comparing uh, how different commentators dealt with even the word blood in the two verses because some are reading the blood as referring to the blood of Moshe that was threatened to be shed and some are reading blood to be the blood of the circumcision. And we went down that rabbit hole a little bit. And I don't remember if when we emerged from it, we finished the last Rashi on verse uh, 20, uh, 26. Does anyone have a note on that if we actually finished that Rashi? I know we started it because remember we did the Vayirif. But did anyone know if we finished it? No one knows? Let's read verse 26. Maybe I'll read the Rashis to get us through a little quickly, and then we'll move forward. Um, Verse 26 is the last verse of chapter four, by the way, is the last verse of this section. Vayiref mimenu, something like he let him go. So we assume the him is is the angel. Who is being let go is also a question. Is it Moshe, who is the one who is being threatened, or is it the child? Az Amra, then she said, the she here is clear, it is Tzipora, she's the only she in the scene. Chatan damim lamulot. You are a bridegroom of blood with respect to the circumcisions, right? And if we compare the previous phrase, ki chatan damim atali, to chatan damim lamulot, right? What's the difference between saying in the previous verse, you are a, a bridegroom of blood to me, versus you are a bridegroom uh, of blood for circumcisions. Uh, what Rashi says is, um, let's just read the Rashi quickly. The angel released him. As Hevina, therefore she, Sipora um, uh, understood, that whatever danger was threatening Moshe, it was with respect to the Mila, the circumcision that hadn't yet been done, but now was done. Meaning the, re- the angel's release of Moshe suggests that the threat to Moshe ha- is gone. Then on the next Rashi, uh, when she said, you are a, a bridegroom of blood with respect to Mulot. Very, very, very kind of terse words. My groom, my chatan, Hayan Yertzach, was almost murdered or was liable to be murdered al-dvar hamila, with respect to the circumcision that had not yet been done. Meaning, chatan damim, you were a bridegroom of blood, meaning not the blood of circumcision. You were almost a bloody bride, bridegroom, meaning you were almost killed. Right? That's the jump. The damim here means your blood was at stake. Why was at stake? Lamulot, with respect to, I don't know why it's plural, the circumcision or circumcisions that had yet to be done. I did it. You're welcome. Now your damim, your blood is no longer in jeopardy. That's how Rashi reads the chatan damim lamulot, right? The damim here is um, Moshe's blood, not the blood of circumcision. And then finally, uh, uh, stop me at any point if I'm going too quickly, and maybe we didn't even do this last week, so we will have... Um, done this overly quickly on the word la mulot, right? Rashi first gives his answer on content, and then he goes back and does a little bit of uh, uh, Hebrew precision. You know, he sometimes switches that order. Sometimes he does the Hebrew precision first, and then he gives you the drash. This time he resolved the problem in the verse from his perspective, and then he says, "That's a weird word, la mulot, right? It's weird, even if you know a little bit of Hebrew. The verb is la mul, infinitive." But you don't pluralize an infinitive, right? You don't say, you have the verb lichtov to write. You don't say lichtovim. You don't, uh, an infinitive is unconjugated, 
right? It just left as it is, right? So it looks like it begins with the infinitive to circumcise, but mulot looks like a feminine plural, right? In modern Hebrew, if we took the noun milah, which is the gerund of the verb lamul, circumcising, right, or circumcision, the plural of that is milot. But here we have lamulot. So Rashi says on that, al-devar hamulot, the lamid reader, even though it looks like it's the beginning of an infinitive because the infinitive of to circumcise is lamul, read the lamid not as to as an infinitive, but al or al-devar, shem davarhu. It is a thing. The mulot is a noun, not a verb form. The halamid, the lamid at the beginning of the word, which is pretending to be, as it were, the beginning of a circum- uh, circumcision, of an infinitive, meshameshet bilashon al, is serving the meaning of the word al, meaning with respect to, uh, I just lost my place, kamo, just like, Amar parol Israel. Let me share my screen and show you that verse from Parshat B'Shalach. Okay, so in a few, uh, just a few chapters later, just nine chapters later, which we'll get to in 2024, maybe we can study while we're on the bus in Bahrain, as the synagogue does its Abraham Accords trip, which I hope you'll join us for. Uh, we have the beginning of Parshat B'Shalach. Um, if you go to the context, uh, God said to Moses, saying, the bear of Israel, speak to the children of Israel, Yashuvu, they should turn back, they should make their encampment in front of this place called Piachirot, between Migdol and Yam, in front of Baltzafon, they should encamp facing it towards the sea. And Pharaoh said to the children of Israel, they are um, confused in the land. See how I translated that intentionally, incorrectly as to? Pharaoh wasn't speaking to them, right? They're not with Pharaoh. They're with God. And Pharaoh is trying to strategize and plot. And the Torah says, live Israel. What it really means is, really means is regarding the people of it, the children of Israel. Here it's translated as of the children of Israel, that they're, they're locked in. I'm going to, I'm going to go get them. Okay. So Rashi says, just like here, the Lamed is Livnei Yisrael, and it's more obvious because here, this Lamed in Livnei Yisrael does not look like an infinitive. It's not like a Lamed pretending to be infinitive. It's a Lamed with, as a preposition, like a stem cell preposition where it can mean lots of different things. I mean, on, to, with respect to, that's the same as the Lamed of Lamulot. You had been, Moshe, almost a bloody bridegroom because of the circumcisions that had not been done. That's Rashi on this verse, and that kind of brings a close to the three, three verse, three or four verse uh, um, episode that we've been lingering on for a long time. Rick, and then Barry. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask about um, Ashley Leonard. If, can't if hear there you, was, Rick. Uh, um, now I can hear you. Now? Yeah. Okay, hi. Hi. Um, the lamulot, the vav isn't there for the plural, which is kind of common. But I wanted to ask uh, Leonard, I, I, I know what Rashi said, but is there any kind of other word, uh, mulat, mulet? Uh, um, is there any kind of uh, other way to read that besides a plural? Because like, the vav isn't there. That's all. You mean... The second vav of, of mulot? Yes, that it's missing, so maybe it's not really mulot. It could be some some other word, mem, lamed, tet, ataf. Is there any other uh, root? Probably my, not. My but, response is why? Like, what what are you searching for? Um, a, 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 Just a different translation, because um, we were having a hard time it's, it doesn't look like the usual infinitive and all that kind of thing. So maybe just yeah. exploring if it's a different word, if there's a different root there. Yeah. Um, listen, anything is always possible. It is the only place in the scene where the root mila comes up, right? We, we, clearly what's happening in verse 25 is a, is a 
is a milah because it's vatichrot or lat bana that she cut off the foreskin of her son, but the root isn't used. So it's not like there is a a hundred percent obvious uh, understanding that la mulot is from milah, but I would say it's ninety nine point seven nine percent that it that that's what it refers to. But um, in a midrashic realm, anything is possible. Uh, Barry. Um. So I'm confused. Uh, okay. I, I I think the story was there was only one circumcision that took place, but we have plural circumcisions and, and, and plural bloods. How did one become more than one? Yeah, so blood is a word like pants in English where it's often, like and scissors, where the, um, the, the, the word appears in plural. Damim is a way of referring to blood as a singular concept, right? And if you think about it, what blood is, right? What is a blood? Is it a blood cell? So even in English, the, 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 the singular word blood refers to lots of blood. In Hebrew, the plural word, word, word damim refers to the notion of blood. So that, that was the easier one. Why the mulot is plural, we don't know, right? It does seem to be there's only one episode of cutting here. But I think I heard you refer us to the word circumcisions. I did because mulot is plural. Yes. But, but then I could, but it was a kind of a, a nod to the, what the word looks like in Hebrew. And then I went backwards and said, yeah, we're only aware of one cutting in this particular scene. So um, Rashi is not perturbed by the plural. He even uses the plural in his explanation, right? He says, al devar hamulot on the, the matter of the circumcision. So he actually retains the plural in his commentary, even though there's only one that we're aware of. It's a mystery. Yeah. Anyone uh, have second, an idea on it? A second question. Uh, the, the, she threw this at the angel, whatever that is. Uh, is it possible her statement, you are now a bridegroom of blood to me, refers to the angel? The, the whatever this being is, and uh, I, wet, wet, wedded to the being. I suggested at previous our meetings that this this so-called angel, this being, was uh, something um, prehistoric. Let's say pre pre biblical, pre uh-huh. pre Breshit. And that she's now wedded to the being. That the being is a chatan damim. Uh, it's a threat to the to that being that that to make it go away. You are now mine. Um. Also a possibility. Uh, in terms of the plurality of Mulotberry, uh, for those of you who have the um, this chumash, if uh-huh. you look at um, the one right underneath Rashi on, on page Nun Gimel, Ibn Ezra Ha'aruch, um, and look at the bottom of the second paragraph, Mulot Shem Devar, the word Mulot, he takes out the Lamed, is a noun, Shem Devar, the, the name of a thing. And why is it in the plural? Since damim is plural, and damim, it's natural for the word damim in Hebrew to be plural, even referring to a single instance of blood. Since damim is plural, mulot is plural, right? So, and, and the reader will understand that damim is generally used in plural. So he says that the mulot is pulling from the plurality of, um, mm. of, of, uh, of the blood. Hmm. Anyone else before we leave Zipporah and the Flint? Rebecca? Um, I, I don't know if what I have to say is a question or a comment, but um, I'm wondering about the fact that Khatan uh, Zamin shows up twice in Kapei in, in and Kapav, and whether there's the intention is to say that in the first in the first pasuk, it's one kind of chatan damim, and then in the second one, she's saying, "Oh, you're not that kind of chatan damim. You're not a dead a groom; rather, you're a a groom of circumcision." So, kind of wondering if there's anything said about that sort of balance between. Yes, it's very good. So, some of the commentators do say that in the first phrase, she's saying, "You're at risk." And in the second phrase, she's saying, because of the blood of the circumcision, connecting the damim to mulot, not to chatan, you're, you're okay, right? 
um, that, that in the first case, the, it's the blood of Moshe and the second sentence is the blood of the circumcision. Rashi is reading specifically against that, but Rashi is just Rashi, right? Um, and the, and the, the doubling of a phrase that I don't think we ever see anywhere in the Torah, maybe the Tanakh, I don't know. Um, is, it, is, it, is it a doubling for emphasis or, a, or is the second a, um, a switch from the meaning of the first line? And the only... Like these verses are the only setting, the only context from which or through which understand them, right? So it's a bit of it's a bit of a circular reasoning because we only know we only have a sense of what these words might mean from this scene. It's not like we have parallel scenes elsewhere, um, and it's odd phrasing, bridegroom of blood, you know. So that's definitely a possibility. Chatan damimatali, you're in, you're in jeopardy. You might be a bloody bridegroom. Chatan damim lamalot. You're a, you're a bridegroom, damim lamalot, because of the blood. Now you get to be my living bridegroom because of the blood of the circumcisions that I performed while you were off, you know, meditating or something. Great. Uh, Joanna? I'm wondering if Ibn um, Ezra is making this point connecting to what Rebecca said also, because normally in smichut, when we have two nouns in relationship with each other, wouldn't we take whether or not singular or plural follows based on the first yeah. noun, right? Beit Sefer or Bate Sefer, it would follow Bate, you know, if the first noun is singular or plural, it would follow that. So in a way, is Ibn Ezra almost saying here, this is an exception to the normal grammar one would expect to find. And then Rebecca's pointing out also of the double appearance of Khatan Damim works nicely. Don't think I'm understanding it, Joanna. So, so is so it yes. should it in the phrase chatan damim, right? If I just took it out of Tanakh and wanted to use that in a Hebrew sentence, because chatan is singular, wouldn't it follow that any verbs or adjectives or describers that follow about the chatan damim would be singular? But in Correct. this case, we have the plural. The plural being lamulot. Right. Yeah. So okay. So what Joanna's saying is. In a, in a smichut phrase, a two-noun phrase, um, the um, whether it's bate sefer, houses of a book, which is now a plural noun. So if you wanted to say, you know, big schools, it would be bate sefer gedolim. Or if the opposite, you have chatan damim, you have a, a singular noun modified by a plural noun, right? A bridegroom of bloods, and you want to say a big bridegroom of blood, chatandamim <laughs> gadol. The fact that in between the the smichut chatandamim and the word lamulot, you have a preposition, it nullifies all of that, right? So if we were going to say like, um, like, um, how to say this in English, if we were going to say like, like la, the preposition for la mulot means that the word mulot is no longer modifying grammatically chatandamim. It's been led there through a preposition. And in which case, whatever is on the other side of the preposition no longer is obligated to follow the singularity or the plurality of the beginning of the smichut. Um, it still doesn't give us a, like a great explanation. I, I mean, and I don't think that's what Ibn Ezra is saying. I don't think that Ibn Ezra is saying grammatically that mulot is modifying daimim, I think he's saying, and I could be wrong, stylistically, since we already have a word damim in the verse that is plural, even though it references a singular, mulot also. And I would say to Ibn Ezra, humbly, not a great explanation. And not a great explanation for the very reason you're bringing up, because mulot isn't modifying damim, or it's, it's being modified via a preposition. Um, and that's a very you know, nerdy, nerdy grammatical response I just gave, but a preposition does something that breaks up the relationship between the word and the word being modified. Great. Okay. Um, here's where we are. We're a very interesting place. Um, if I wanted to be glib about it, I would say Rashi is exhausted by this scene and confused by it because he goes to sleep for five verses. And I, I don't think um, you know, maybe in a genealogy we once read. I don't think it's we, we have. We, we, it's been a long time since we came to a, um, a, a five stretch, five verse stretch where Rashi says nothing. But if you just look quickly, the next commentary of Rashi 
is chapter 5, verse 1, which means the last five verses of the fourth chapter of Exodus Shemot, which also happened to be the last five verses of the sixth Aliyah of Parshat Shemot, Rashi's quiet. Verse 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. So we get to do uh, as slowly or as quickly we like, it's just learn um, shot together because uh, Rashi is not going to give us any um, any expansion, but there's plenty of stuff for us to explore. Okay, so uh, do I have everyone's blessing to move on to verse 27? Okay. Uh, Rene, do you want to read verse 27 by Yomer Adonai? Vayomer Adonai Laron Ikrat Moshe Amid Bara. It's a shin, like nishika, kiss. God said to Aaron, uh, go and meet Moses um, in, the, in the wilderness. Uh, so he went and he met on the mountain of God and he kissed him. Great. Right. So pretty, uh, you know, there are a lot of emotional reunions in the Torah. Yaakov and Esav, um, uh, will the reunion at, at the end of Parshat, at the, at the beginning of Parshat Yitro, where Moshe comes back from the Exodus. Here we got the two brothers meeting each other on God's command. Right. Um, we'll, we'll drill down a little precisely on Hamid Bara that it's, even though we know what it means, it's not in the wilderness, but it's, it's, it, the 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 hay at the end of Hamidbar means towards the wilderness. So it's as if Hamidbara is coming off of Lech, right? It's almost like Lech Hamidbara. God said to Aaron, go towards the wilderness, Likrat Moshe, right? Rather than meeting him in the wilderness, it's the same meaning, but but um, grammatically, go to greet Moshe towards the wilderness. He went. He pagashed him. He encountered him. Bahar Elohim, mountain of God, Vayishaklo. That word Vayishak, we've seen this before when there's a three-letter root that begins with a nun. The nun falls out in certain forms, including the Vavayipuch. And so Vayishak is from the root Nashak, which means to kiss. And the way you know that is uh, you see that there's a Dagesh in that. Um, there's a Dagesh both in the Yud and both in the Shin. I actually forgot which of those Dageshes one of those dagashas is because of the form, and one of those dagashas says, hey, there used to be a nun here. I just forget which one it, one it is. Great. Let's throw some questions at this verse. Barry. So um, I, maybe it's my memory, but uh, I I don't recall uh, Aaron having any contact with Moshe in their lives until now. Uh, God spoke to Moshe about Aaron and what their connection will be, but from the time of his birth and be, be taken care of by his sister and his mom, uh, I don't see Aaron having any connection to Moshe until now. He, now he finds Moshe and kisses him. Mm. So assuming that's true, and I think you might be right. I haven't, I, I haven't checked that, but I think you might be right. Assuming that's true, give me a therefore. So what, what do you make of the scene, given the fact that this Vayiv Kashehu and, and he met him, might might be a biblical version of and he met him <laughs> he encountered him for the first time what 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 comes up for you about that well it it, it begins with god telling aaron to go meet moshe well, who, who's moshe oh, <laughs> oh oh that's right i have a brother oh yes uh, oh, there's no background in here but god's god's all of a sudden telling aaron to go to go meet somebody you've never known before it's sort of as the story goes. Uh, great, Barry. That question is a wonderful example of what it means to assume, to, to study a verse of Torah, trying to forget what you know about the macro story, right? So, because in the macro story, we know that Aaron and Moshe are brothers and they're going to be encountering each other so many times with the rest of the Torah. But if we were approaching this for the first time, which we'll never be able to do again, uh, it's a one, it's, it's interesting insight. I'd never thought about that, that, where that Aaron is being asked to greet a brother that we know they are brothers and we know they interact, but we've never seen them interact. Right. That's fascinating. I never, never, uh, uh, never thought of that before. Elon. Yeah. I just, uh, I want to talk about the Hamid Barar and, and why it does not say go to meet him in the wilderness, but heads 
towards the wilderness. They don't necessarily heading towards the wilderness does not necessarily mean the same thing as meet him in the wilderness. No different than if somebody said to me, oh, head towards Santa Monica and you'll meet him. To me, that I can meet him on the way towards Santa Monica uh, doesn't necessarily mean in Santa Monica. Although at the mountain of God, in this case, it, it, it does mean that he went all the way towards the, all the way into the wilderness, but that's not clear from the initial, uh, statement. Great. Um, yeah. So, and, and as you're giving someone directions, it's a, it's a different instruction to meet someone at a place or as you're going towards a place. Um, and you can, if you want to, if you were Aaron, you could imagine Aaron saying to God, well, well, what's the meeting point, right? He ends up meeting him at Har Elohim, and maybe someone will ask a question about that. Um, but the instruction is to go in that direction, you know, and, and somehow Moshe will find you, and you're going to end up at the exact same place, right? Um, I don't know why my, my mind is going this way. If you, I imagine many of you at some point have read the movie, uh, read the movie, read the book, The Source, Michener's classic, um, tale about land of Israel in one of the layers. If you don't know the book, it's basically um, archaeologists are um, excavating a tell, right? An archaeological mountain in Israel. And uh, at each of the layers of historical levels, there's a, there are novel novellas within a novel, I'm not giving anything away from the book. It's masterful. And at one of the novellas takes place, I don't know, six, seven century BCE where in, and it's kind of a, a um, historical fiction that is inspired by the siege of Jerusalem um, uh, for which Cheskiyahu built the tunnel that some of you have sloshed through. So it allowed the people who were in, being besieged to access water while they were being besieged. And there's a, um, an engineer, uh, you know, a, a, a six, seven century BC engineer who figures out how to build a tunnel from there to there using like angles and mirrors hundreds of meters away and, and have them meet under, underground. And if they were, if, if the direction of the tunnel, you know, were off by one eighth of a degree, they'd be very far away from each other by the time they met each other under the mountain, right? Modern technology, it's simple. Seventh century BC, it's pretty unbelievable that it could be done. So my mind thinks about it when I think about the scene where God is saying to Aaron, you know, go that direction, Right, it has to be very, very price, precise direction for him to meet Moshe. If Moshe is being told to go in the, you know, from the other other place in that direction, and somehow they meet and they meet at Har Elohim. So God gives, you know, only God can give such broad GPS directions and have the two people actually meet, as it were, like the two ends of that tunnel in the book. Uh, Tova. Um, I think one of the things that strikes me with this after as we've seen chapters and enormous detail and, and um, emotion about Moshe's encounter with God, we have, again, in my memory, Aaron's first encounter with God. And all we get is God told Aaron to go into the desert. And as you've just laid out in this seemingly imprecise way, and Aaron went. And we don't get any of that same sense of what that encounter must have been for Aaron, uh, whether that's because of a difference in personality between Aaron and Moshe or just because it's not Aaron's story. And that's not, you know, the intent of what's being told. But I, I just find it really striking, that contrast. Yeah, great. Great, Tova. Uh, Joanna? So the other thing I'm struck by is also the reference in this pasuk to Har Elokim. Is this not the first time we're encountering that? My assumption is that it's a reference to Sinai, but do we know that? Um, And playing off a little bit of what Barry said, um, you know, the moment we read the words Vaishaklo, I was back in the Yaakov and Esav story and all the Midrashim that are there about what kind of kiss was that? And is this really a loving scene or not quite so tender as, you know, a first read would indicate? Yeah, great. So Joanna is the first person to ask, I think, one of the more obvious questions on the verse, which is, what is Harlohim? I Barry exposed to us that we think we know that Aaron and Moshe, we know the story, so we shouldn't be that surprised that they're meeting each other, except this is the first time. 
we're going to know a whole lot about a place that we might call Elohim, but we don't know it yet in the story. And we're, and, and the way that verse is written, if, if this is written in such a way that the reader is supposed to understand the references, there's a good question. What is Harlohim and why are we being told about it? So we, we might project that it's the place that we're going to eventually know as Harlohim, which is Sinai, but not yet. Look what Uncleus does here. Uncleus is, is kind of troubled by the same thing, or maybe he's not troubled. He just is, is, is certain about what it means. Um, God said to Aaron, Moshe, go and greet Moshe in the mint in the in the wilderness. he went and he met him Betura on the mountain. Tur is a mountain in Aramaic. Alohi Yikara the mountain on which God had revealed, not will reveal, had revealed God's self to him. So according to Unculus, where is this? What's Harlohim according to Unculus? Anyone? Burning bush. Burning bush, right? When we meet the burning bush, we don't think of it as a har. We think of it as 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 just you know somewhere somewhere out there. Depending if your image is from the text or the image is Cecil B. DeMille, we don't necessarily see it. Think of it as being on top of a mountain. Although there are midrashic texts that suggest that the burning bush was on or near Mount Sinai, but according to Unculus, his translation is. What's Harlohim? The mountain upon which God revealed God's self to Moshe, right? So it doesn't push us forward to Sinai necessarily, but rather backward to burning bush. Um, and the fact that he has to do that suggests that, again, as a translator, he's saying, my readers, as they're reading these words for the plainest meaning, this is what they should be thinking about, that this is the mountain already designated as God's mountain because revelation happened there. Great, Rebecca, and then Alan, then Larry, Diane. Um, I have two comments. One is with respect to what Barry said um, about Aaron and the meeting. And I remember that in in Pesuk Yudalid, God actually tells Moshe that that Aaron is going to come out and he's going to be happy to see you. So somehow we, we Moshe knows that Aaron expects him. So there must have been some kind of contact um, between them. Um, yeah, my bring other, up back that verse. What, what verse, Rebecca, were you looking at? Uh, I think it's Yudalid. Yudalid? Yudalid, yeah. When he says that Aaron will, will be able to speak for him, and he actually says he's coming out towards you, and he's going to he's happy to see you. Or right, wonderful. He'll be happy to see you. So if everybody looks back at that verse, verse 14, which is now months ago, I remember our discussing that the Hinehu Yotzelikratecha, how I forgot if it was just in our own reading of the verse or if it was through something that Rashi said that the, the verb is present tense, not that Aaron's going to come out and meet you, that he, he's on his way. Aaron's already on his way to meet you, and he's going to be happy to see you. So if you could read that back into our verse, um, it's almost as if, if, if we read the Yotzei Likratecha in verse 14 as an actual present tense, it's almost as if our verse, verse 27, is going back in time to the time when God had said to Aaron, now it's, now go and meet Moshe, right? Or the Yotzei Likratecha back in our verse is like a going, like he, he, he's going to go. It's like a present tense verb that means something's going to happen in the future. He's going to be meeting you and he'll be happy to see you. And our verse is when he's given the instruction and the vera'a, besamach belibo, uh, back in verse 14, shed some interesting light on Joanna's comment about how we should be understanding the vayishak lo in our verse. Is this, is this, as you said, Joanna, the tender kiss of long lost brothers, which is what the text is priming us to think, because God says Aaron would be happy to see you, or is every kiss very close to um, a bite, right? Nashach and nashak. Uh, and as, as Joanna referenced the the Jacob and Esau kiss from chapters ago, uh, Alan. Wait, I had one oh, more sorry, thing to say. Ahead. So, um, with now adding the tenses in, this would explain why they actually meet near the burning bush, which is closer to where I guess Moses is. But I wanted to add a comment about the vague instructions, which I interpret more as there being like a main road, you know, like the, 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 um, 
the Silk Road um, in the east, or there probably were paths or, or roads that were um, used both for, um, for cattle and maybe just for travel. And so maybe it's not that surprising that they actually met um, because they weren't really wandering through the desert, but on, on the main um, path or road that, that people traveled on. Great, great. And I want to linger on something that Joanna just put in the text, because I also had forgotten that. If you look back to chapter three, verse one, it's, it's, it's amazing what you, can rem- what you can remember, and it's amazing what you can forget, no matter how many times you read it. In chapter three, verse one, which is the beginning of, this, of, the, of the extended burning bush scene that we just recently finished, Moshe was shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law, no, Kohen Mijan, the priest of Mijan, Bain Hagat Hatson, Achar Hamidbar. He drove the sheep. We spent a long time in this Achar Hamidbar, beyond the wilderness to another wilderness. What does Achar mean? Vayavo. And he went, El Har Elohim, to the mountain of God, Chorevach, to Chorev. And on that verse, now coming back to me, we said, What could Har Elohim possibly have meant then? In our verse, the one we're dealing with now, a Har Elohim could potentially move backwards to the burning bush scene. But in the burning bush scene, what's the context for Elohim? And Rashi says it's named in our in that verse for what it's what's going to happen in the future at Sinai. It's actually the same mountain. And Uncleus uses the exact same language. If you look at Uncleus in chapter 3, verse 1, Latura de Itgele Alohi Yikara Darunai, the mountain upon which God reveals God's self or God's glory. So thank you, Joanna. Thank you for reminding us what all of us had forgotten, which is that the exact same words Harlohim appeared. And so the reunion of Aaron and Moshe are going to take place where God meets Moshe the first time. And if we follow the Midrashic through line and Rashi through line, the same place where Revelation is going to happen. Great. Uh, Alan? All of these comments are going to make my my question seem very simplistic they're they're beautiful insights that i had completely forgotten and it's just incredible to hear it and to to see everything being presaged in this particular way they lay it out and then do it i I just have just this there's some words that just struck me that i just don't see because in in verse 24 we read adonai you know this is the whole thing about and, and and they met and that's an unusual word. You know, I don't generally think about Vayikashehu. It says Vayikashehu Adonai. And yet in verse 27, that uh, um, we're just doing, excuse me, verse 26, 27, excuse me, it talks about Vayikashehu Bahar Elohim. All right. So again, you have Vayikashehu there in terms of meeting him. But yet one is Har Elohim, one Ha Elohim, and the other is Adonai. And I wonder if there's any possible, it, it could be random, we know, but it's a question of Har Elohim in terms of revelation. It's interesting that it's God of justice, Elohim being uh, justice rather than of mercy, which would make sense in terms of giving the law. But yet that prior view, that that, that prior section, we talk about the whole encounter that Zippor is going through is being with Adonai. Yeah. And it's like it's an ultimate uh, quick switch. Great. And yes, so Har Elohim makes sense as a, as a, as a, as a decreeing God of, of the mountain. It begs the question why it's Vayifkesheu Adonai in the previous scene, because that seems to be a pretty severe God seeking Moshe's death, right? You would think that maybe that would be Vayifkesheu Elohim. By the way, the thing I appreciate most about your comment, Alan, is your, um, your pronunciation of the word presage, because I love your pronunciation. I, th- I think of the word as presage. Maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong, but pre-sage actually pronounced it in such a way which actually um, telegraphs its meaning, right? To uh, to um, to be to be to be wise ahead of time. So thank you for your, for giving me another way of pronouncing that word, Larry Di- uh, Diane. Nothing to add because the the two main points I wanted to make were already dealt with by Joanna and I think by Rebecca, um, <clears throat> the Har Elohim. And just the geography of where he's going and how he's walking. Um, but what, what strikes me is, and I don't think he's commented on it yet, 
is just the, the, the shift in the, in the, in the story here. I feel like I want to take a razor blade to the text and reorganize it again. You know, a la Thomas Jefferson, but with a different purpose. <clears throat> because this entire encounter that we just finished today, which is completely perplexing to me, can be taken out of the entire narrative and it flows so much better. Because as, as has already been mentioned in verse 14, I'm not looking at it now, I think it's 14, God told Moses that Aaron was already on his way. Now in, <clears throat> in verse 27, it says that, uh, could that, that could be taken. God had told Aaron to go. So in other words, even though he's already told Moses previously, your brother's on his way. Now the text is telling us, and remember that God told Aaron to go and to meet him. And if you read this in this way and you take out everything we had, we had done with Yitro and with uh, Sipor and everything else, this is just a really the, 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 the entirety of the, of the rest of the chapter is a nice wrapping up of how we get to Egypt. And maybe that's why Rashid had nothing to say about it because it's just, there's, it, it flows so well, there's nothing to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or there was like a pogrom in the next village while he got to this verse and he had to go, <laughs> d- d- you know, def- defend the yeshiva. Uh, as, you, as you say, everything is possible. Right. I mean, every once in a while, it's worth it to, 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 to stretch our imagination and actually, actually image the man Rashi sitting at his desk doing this work. Right. He, he, he's not a mythical figure. He like, he, he's, he's not prehistoric. He existed. There are no questions about the authorship in the same way that there are questions even of Shakespeare, right? He, he was a guy, a rabbi with a, with, a, with a school. He was sitting in some room with a candle and writing this, living a in a glass of wine, yes, Why, you know, teaching his daughters how to put on filling as it were. And in, in early medieval France, where where, where, where where Jews were threatened all the time, and it's, it's really, sometimes it's just important to just imagine what his life was, you know, from six in the morning to nine in the morning, what he was doing. Don't you see him? Don't, don't you see him as being, in a sense, yourself, with his students around him, going verse by verse through the entire Tanakh, and maybe he took a week off, and Leonard took his place. So maybe we need to find Leonard's commentary on uh, the rest of this chapter. Yeah. I just want to say, um, probably most people know, there's a a series of three books about Rashi's daughters. And um, I happen to be reading the second one right now. And it really puts a human face on the man. It's it's fascinating. Even even if not quite accurate, it's just fascinating to consider him as a historical character. Yeah. Tova, I thought scholarship was in agreement that there are at least legitimate questions as to whether or not one man named William Shakespeare wrote everything that is attributed to him. No? Nope. That, 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 that's a fully resolved question in scholarship? Um, I, in scholarship and academics, I'd say yes. I think the, the questions about his, the so-called questions didn't start till the mid-17th century, long after the vast number of contemporaries he had, including all the people in his acting company. Right. It, it, I'll, I'd be happy to discuss it with you sometime, but, uh, yeah, I would say that. Then I, then I, then I take back the, uh, <laughs> my, my calumnious insinuation. That <laughs> That's right. All his plays. And yet, and yet some very prominent voices have raised doubts, including. Indeed they have, but they were not really academics in the area. I know. But, no, but Supreme, Supreme Court justices among them. I know, but the yes is we. <laughs> but I agree with you. It's all specious. I mean, it's yeah, all. Specious. Yeah. Mind games. Mind games. It's not only specious, it's highly um, elitist because it doesn't start until they begin to be embarrassed by this prominent voice having been a uh, middle class person. It was not a butcher's son, by the way. (laughs) That's inaccurate. For, for, uh, for, for when the world opens up again and we can, and we can do more things. If, if you're, if you're history lovers and Shakespeare appreciators, I, I strongly suggest the next time you're anywhere uh, near England to visit the Globe Theater on the Thames and the Shakespeare Museum. I, I spent four hours there and I wish I'd spent 10. It, it's an unbelievable 
uh, exploration into the life and the times of Shakespeare. And one of my favorite things is you're walking down a spiral staircase, kind of a, a spiral like walkway. And in an, in an artistic way, it's displaying all of the words and the phrases in use in modern English that we can be, that can be singly attributed to the invention of Shakespeare. Like how many phrases we use today that Shakespeare um, essentially created. Uh, one of my favorite museum experiences of all time. Okay. But from Shakespeare to Rashi, uh, Joel, and then Rick, uh, and then Norm, and then I want to read a Ramban. If Rashi um, is silent, then the least we can do is talk about Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Joel. So the question I had was, why, why does Aaron have to go all the way from Goshen to down to wherever he's going, which by my atlas is at least 150 miles, only to turn around and go right back to Goshen. <laughs> so, I mean, is it is it for Moshe to fill Aaron in on the plan um, and figure out what their strategies is going to be? Or, as you know, Rebecca pointed out from the previous verse, is it to come Moshe down and make sure that he doesn't have second thoughts and to encourage him on his own walk there. Yeah. Great questions. And it, it does make us wonder about how, how deep to drill down on the question of raw geography here, right? If where Midian is and where the burning bush was is Chorev, where the um, revelation is going to be, then I don't know, according to Bashalach, um, and Yitro, that's a, that's a 40 day journey, according to the way we, um, uh, sorry, a 49 day journey, as we think about how long it took them to get from Egypt there. And by the way, in between there is, oh, I don't know, a Yamsuf, a sea of reeds, right? So, um, the, the, the Midrashic linkage of the scene in the burning bush in Midian to what's eventually going to be Har Elohim Sinai, it, it, it does, force us to confront geographic questions that are hard to make sense of, including this relatively minor, but still interesting one, Joel, which is why, why obligate Aaron to go on such a long journey and potentially have to like take a boat across the Ansuf if he's just turning around. I don't have a great answer, but it's a, but it's a nice, it's a very precise, the question is a pre- precise read. Great. Uh, Rick and then Norm. That was perfect. Uh, Joel. Um, because I wanted to point out that the trope are just like the trope for Abraham, lech lecha. There you had a lecha, but there it's also vayomer Adonai el Avram. So here we have vayomer Adonai el Aharon. That's the same. And then the tevir lech is the same in lech lecha, lech lecha. So the drash there um, is that. Uh, it wasn't just Abraham going, it was Sarah and, and all the souls, all the people that they had converted, right? So um, it gave them time to teach people how to be Jewish and all this kind of stuff on, on the journey, right? So uh, Aaron and uh, Moses, I think they were working out the details because remember the, the question about whether they were going to fight or not was about the, their roles, Um that the one was the priest and uh, the other one not um the the rashi on that verse 14 of the uh he won't be angry with you because of the high position of being the priest right. Right. so um they'll be able to talk about things on the trip the other thing last thing vayishak lo he only kissed moses he didn't kiss sipora or his uh, nephews so um just right. wanted and, to throw and, that in there and who kissed whom, right? Vayishak Lo, yeah. that's what Ramban's going to play with. All we know is that one man kissed one man. And we assume that the man doing the kissing is Aaron, because Aaron is the subject of the previous verbs. But it's not 100% clear. And so that the Ramban I wanted to read was was related to that. Um, before we get to Norm, just um, as we toggle back and forth between Rashi and Shakespeare, uh, and how we have to have a Rashi class trip to Stratford, Ontario, which I'm looking forward to. Um, Stratford-upon-Avon is also a fascinating place to visit. 
when I was on sabbatical, by weird coincidence, Noah, who was a junior in uh, at Shalhevda at the time, her first semester junior English class was British literature, and we were in you know Britain. So I took her on little mini field trips as she was studying different things. She was reading Canterbury Tales, and I took her to Canterbury. Um, and she was reading a lot of Shakespeare, so we went to visit Stratford upon Avon. And uh, in the in the there's a little another little museum adjacent to the home that uh, was likely Shakespeare's. And in a certain pl- a certain part of the museum, you walked into a room, and there were actors there in um, in Shakespearean costumes, and they were Shakespearean actors. You could basically say to them do this scene and they would do it almost like you're you're asking that of a machine but they were people they had committed so many scenes to memory i love king the the, the speech that king uh, in um henry v that he gives right before the uh, the battle i said how you know how, how about the henry v speech before the battle and the actor went right into it it was unbelievable to just basically have like an on-demand shakespearean um uh scene and sometimes they were actually acting out together so uh, on your next trip, you should go there as well. Uh, Norm. I just wanted to address your comment about Rashi's lifetime. Um, during much of his lifetime, being re- relations between the Jews and the non-Jews in his region in northern France were quite good. Mm. Um, there were Jews in the titled aristocracy. Um, Jews were not treated poorly generally. Things went south in Germany earlier, partly because Germany generally was chaotic. We call it Germany, and we think of it as one country. Um, but in those days, it was a whole bunch of little tiny uh, principalities, duchies, counties, what have you, um, and archbishoprics. Um, and things were very chaotic there. Um, but in France, things were relatively stable for a long time. Certainly towards the end of his life, the Crusades start and things go south, even where he is. And um, I would say to the people who are reading or considering reading Maggie Anton's wonderful trilogy, um, that she sets that forth pretty clearly, but other sources and the timelines generally tend to back that up. So, um, but I think part of the reason he doesn't comment here may just be that nobody asks a question. I learned many years ago that mostly Rashi's commentary is answers to the questions he was asked. And sometimes we have, we can easily tell what the question was. Sometimes we can't. And sometimes there's nothing there because nobody asked. Right. And, and 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 that it in itself is interesting because look how many things we've asked on this verse, right? So yeah. it's interesting when we have um, curiosity about verses that apparently they didn't, or listen, there are lots of possibilities. It could be that he wrote it and the and the and the verses were lost. It's still a miracle that all this is extant, right? So is it possible that it was on one little piece of parchment that got swept away by the cleaning lady? Um, I wanted to read one Ramban with you. Uh, if you're in the um, in this book, oh, I keep forgetting. I can just pull it up on Safaria. Give me a second, because not everyone has that book. Uh, I forgot to pull this up in advance. Give me one second, and probably what, what this will end. Um, what's our what verse will be on? Twenty-seven, right? Okay, Exodus four twenty-seven. Okay, let me share the screen. Sorry, it took so long. Okay, so um, here's our verse. Um, so Ramban, Nachmanides, Spain, um, 13th century, uh, 14th, 13th or 14th century. He kissed him. Ramban was responding to the question that we kind of played with. Who kissed whom? Aharon, Nashak, Lemoshe. Aaron kissed Moshe. And if you're wondering about the Lama there, kiss in Hebrew, at least in biblical Hebrew, is similar to other verbs where in English, it's a direct object, no preposition. In Hebrew, the verb comes with a preposition. So to kiss someone in biblical Hebrew is to kiss to someone. The Lama is there. Nashak Moshe. Ki Moshe ha'anav. Moshe, the humble one. Nahag kavod ba'achiv hagadol. Treated his older brother, with great respect, 
Ulechen lo amar vayishku ish laachiv. And therefore, the text did not say that each one kissed one another. What do you make of that? In what way is Ramban saying that it's kavod to Aaron that Moshe didn't kiss him, but rather he let Aaron kiss him? What, what, what do you like? In what way does that make sense in understanding how deference is doled out? Any thoughts, uh, Norm, and then Tova, or Norm, is your still hand up from before? Tova? Uh, well, I think it's generally um, the notion that the person who takes the initiative is the person to whom the greatest deference is due. If you take the initiative, you are claiming an authority or a prominence. So if you uh, allow, or, or if Aaron is the one who, who takes the initiative to kiss, it is paying deference to his, his role as the elder brother. Uh, so I th- it's an issue of, of initiative, who, of who prompts it. Yeah. Uh, a generation ago, who, who introduces who to whom was a, a major aspect of etiquette that we've kind of lost. <laughs> yeah, we, we've lost some of that formality. And in some places we've reversed it because you can yeah. imagine if Ramban were writing today, it would be reversed that to show deference to, um, to his older brother, he, he, he went towards him and kissed his ring or, or, or kissed him and he initiated it. But but in a Rambanian world, maybe, you know, this says something about Spanish aristocracy in the 13th century. It was allowing himself to be kissed by Aaron that showed him that showed Aaron that Aaron had had authority, had seniority, had primacy, even though Moshe is going to become the significant one. And the reason why this is interesting is that, you know, how when we closed Breshit a long time ago, we said, Ah, we're, we're, we're finally done with the endless question of firstborn and, and who's more significant, right? Yeah. And Ramban is it, not, not directly linking to that, but reawakening the fact that even between Aaron and Moshe, there are questions of, 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 of primogeniture and, and how that plays out in the story. It Great. could relate to the uh, notion of not speaking until you're spoken to. Yeah. Right. Great. Tybal and Barry, and then we'll call it a day. Um, you started where I thought you were going, which is the whole notion, the idea that Moshe, who grew up not just among the Israelites, but also among the Egyptians, and in the Near East, there was this whole, the whole, and so that Moshe, aware of how the Israelites kept upending with the younger son, younger son, younger son, a number of generations was extra punctilious. That's where I thought you were going. And if I can add something else, I don't know if it's okay to say this kind of thing, but new to this, new to this class, this is my second time. But last night I heard JTS's Benjamin Sommer talk about um, something I'd never heard before, which is the idea that the Torah is really in the beginning only the story of the Levites and only the Levites were enslaved in Israel and the other, te- the other tribes, the other 11 tribes, however you count them, depending on sons or grandsons, stayed behind, which also then would explain why the Levites didn't get territory, they got cities. And I'm just saying, never having heard that before, given what some people have said about Aaron seeing Moshe and not seeing it before, it just, it's a very different frame of understanding for thinking about, oh, if this is really only about one family story, not all the Israelites. Anyway, I just thought I'd toss that out there. I don't know if you've ever heard. I mean, of course you probably have, but it was new to me, the whole, it's really only the Levites. The exodus only applied to the Levites. That's how the numbers work in the archaeology, etc. Great. And Benjamin Summer is one of, one of, the movements and and the nation's uh, great teachers of biblical text. He's he is he is a delight to study with. So and whenever the opportunity to do so in person or online, uh, seek him out. He's actually taught at Betham. I think Rabbi Lucas brought him for an adult education. It wasn't a full weekend thing, but I think he's taught at Betham. Phenomenal teacher. Barry, you get the last word. So our our discussion was of who kissed who and what initiated that. Um, going back um, uh, in, in, in chapter three. God telling Moshe that Aaron was already on his way. God had already instructed Aharon to go meet Moshe. So Moshe is the object of what Aaron's going to do. 
Um, and, and, and so uh, it's Aaron, it, it's Aaron's going to go and kiss Moshe, recognizing that that's the object of, uh, of the action. Great. So look at how much we all had to say on verses that Rashi was quiet on. Uh, when we meet next week, we'll pick up on verse 28 and see if we'll get all through all the verses until the next Rashi. We'll go as slow or as quick as people want to. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.